Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Halloween, and we've got some fun holiday discussion planned for you. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined by Molly Fool contributor Dan Klein via Skype. How's it going, Dan? Uh, fresh off a plane from Vegas, have not slept very much. That, that seems pretty typical from folks who just got back from Vegas. Uh, that's typical for us around the D.C. area as well. We were just talking before the show. Nats versus Astros. These games have been going to midnight every night. But finally, uh, the series has come to a conclusion. The Nats have pulled it out. The team of destiny has has fulfilled uh, fulfilled what they what they set out to do. Austin Morgan, probably the biggest Nats fan in the room right now. Uh, how you feeling? I feel great. They did not sweep like I predicted on Friday's show. <laughs> But a win's a win. Yeah, first World Series ever uh, that the road team has won every single game, which, you know, for a sport like baseball, which is the longest lived of any sport in the U.S., crazy to see. Uh, And, uh, you know, we got a parade to go to next week, maybe so. Saturday. Saturday at 2 o'clock. All right. I'm a little little bummed that I'm not going to miss work for the parade, but I am happy that there's a parade. Hey, me too. I mean, who doesn't like... Uh, victories and hey, DC's title town now. We've got uh, the Caps won a couple years ago. I think WNBA 2018 got a Capitals, 2019 Mystics, 2019 Nationals. I, I, I think we got a little something to say about that in Boston. So. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. So we, we got some fun segments uh, for you today. We're going to talk about what we're most scared of in the stock market. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the stocks that we think are going to turn back into pumpkins. We're going to talk about our zombie stocks, the so stocks that we think can come back from the dead. And we're going to share our Mount Rushmore of Halloween candy. So off the top of the show, Dan, just in the Halloween spirit, when you look around the stock market today, what scares you the most? So on the plus side, there's a lot of information available. There's multiple television channels devoted to, while the stock market is open, analyzing things. But I think that's actually a major problem for stock buyers. There's a lot of sort of in-the-moment pressure when the the talking head on TV is screaming about how great some stock is to want to get in on the action. And I think the reality is you don't buy stocks rashly. In my opinion, you should be buying stocks that you are very familiar with the company that you've taken some time to learn about. And it's great if watching uh, CNBC or Bloomberg gives you an idea to go research a stock because, wow, I just ate at that restaurant. I just used that product. And then you dig in. But you should not be buying stocks because someone is telling you how great it is. You need to figure that out on your own. That's true. And maybe uh, interesting advice for a show like ours where we try to give folks uh, folks some stock advice. But yeah, you really need to do your own research. We talked about last week on the Friday show, uh, this this WeWork filing, uh, where you know if you didn't really pay attention to that S1, those you know required regulatory filings, you know, you might have bought a company that uh, was drastically overvalued. Thankfully, the system worked there. I will say for me right now, what I'm most scared of in the market, I think Often, what is scary to us are things that we don't fully understand, and I think the repo market is something that's been in the news recently that you know I don't perfectly understand, and I know a lot of folks out there probably don't. Uh, what the repo market is is overnight banks uh, will loan out uh, uh, treasury reserves or, or, or bonds uh, to f- fulfill their their day to day liquidity needs. Uh, but we've seen in in the recent weeks and months that that market has locked up a little bit. Rates have have 
increased. And that's just caused uh, some illiquidity in the market, has required uh, the Federal Reserve to pump uh, uh, some more you know, uh, cash into the market. We've seen uh, some conversations uh, from the Secretary of the Treasury. They may ease uh, some restrictions on banking reserves to try to add some liquidity to this market. That sounds really complicated. Why is this scary to me? Um, well, <laughs> liquidity is really important uh, for any market to function well. You need to be able to buy and sell, barter and tra- or engage in transactions. And when you don't have the cash there uh, to make that happen, then the whole system can lock up. Uh, you know, We've seen rates come lower and lower uh, as the Fed has tried to stimulate the economy. But if with the repo market rates kind of moving in the opposite to where the Fed is trying to, to, to move rates, there is some concern that, that you know, there is less control than we would like to see uh, from our central bankers. And so when you combine something that uh, addresses illiquidity, which is very scary in and of itself. That's difficult to understand. Uh, that's really scary for me in the stock market today. Yeah, it, it's it's just one of those things of it's this sort of like shadowy, shadowy sub financial system that the average person doesn't understand, makes it very hard to regulate and really just hard to follow. It's 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 one of those things that you want to know as much as possible, and this isn't something that generally makes the news. Yeah, that that's right. And the other thing about it that uh, you know, for an individual investor's point of view is there's really not much you can do about it. Okay, this is something that the Fed and our our regulators really uh, really have control of. So not, nothing you can do actively from you know from an individual investor point of view. I don't think you should change your investment strategy based on these fears. But uh, you know, it, who knows what's going to happen there? All right, let's move on to our, to our other our, our another one of our segments, Dan. I think this will be a fun one. I'm calling this our We Work for More Memorial. Stocks that are going to turn into pumpkins. So we saw WeWork when they dropped their S1 a couple months back at a $47 billion valuation. Has since been pulled and then bailed out at $8 billion. Well, let's see if we can we can uh, you know call out a couple stocks that we think might have a chance to turn into pumpkins. Maybe not quite as bad as WeWork, but uh, Dan, what what do you think? What's a pumpkin stock for you? So for me, it's Charter Communications because of all the big cable companies, Charter is the one that's most heavily invested in cable and broadband. They don't own theme parks. They don't have television networks. And what you see happening now is broadband growth has slowed to a trickle and cord cutting has massively accelerated. We lost about 3 million cable customers last year. And in the first half of this year, we've lost almost the same amount. So you've been able to cover your cable losses at Charter with broadband gains. But I think we're now moving to a a reality where that's not going to be the case. And the cable numbers may happen very, very quickly. And Charter does not have sort of alternate means of delivery or streaming services. They're very late to the game. And I'm not saying their business is going to evaporate because they have monopolies in many markets and old people will still keep cable and there's no alternative for broadband. But this might go from a growth story to an erosion story very quickly. Yeah, I mean, we've seen uh, another cable example. Xfinity has tried to diversify its revenue stream. I don't know if you've seen this Xfinity Flex box that they're pushing out there, kind of competing with Roku. They realize that that folks are not subscribing to cable at the same rate. So now, if you have, uh, if you subscribe to their cable services, they'll give you a free this uh, this Xfinity Flex box that, that that you know acts kind of like a Roku stick. But what it does is allows them to sell ads uh, ads on their service, uh, which which gives them a new revenue stream. And I think. Across the board, when it comes to uh, to come to the cable industry, uh, you know you have those safe those safe revenues as you mentioned uh, from broadband. There's really not a lot of not another alternative uh, to receive internet, uh, you know, beyond the, these folks. But when it comes to continued growth, uh, there, there's certainly a lot, certainly a lot of threats there. 
yes, Charter should have been doing all that. The reality is they haven't been doing all that, and it's almost too late. So this is going to become, you know, it's a very nice business model that has recurring revenue, but eventually there'll be an alternative to broadband too. And then it becomes, why is there any reason to to use this company that, you know, has a reputation for not treating people that well? I think that's fair to say of the whole cable industry. So really, it might take 10 years, it might take 20, but their entire business could be under threat. Yeah, we'll have to see how how this industry evolves when it comes to when it comes to cable. Clearly, as distribution methods change, that's that's certainly a threat to these established players. My pumpkin stock is Uber. Uh, a lot of folks might say, "Hey, this 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 stock has already sold off twenty five percent this year. Uh, you know, why do you think it's gonna gonna turn into a pumpkin?" Well, uh, their lockup expires from from their IPO on November sixth. Uh, about sixty five percent of its float is currently outstanding. However, VCs and sovereign wealth funds hold about 38% of its shares. 13% of those belong to SoftBank. 8% of those belong to Benchmark, its primary venture capital investor. Obviously, uh, as, as that lockup expires, we're going to see some selling of those folks as they want to uh, you know, take some profits on their, on their VC investment, at least Benchmark. I don't know if SoftBank is, is showing a profit <laughs> at this time. Um, so that's really going to increase the float. But then looking out even longer term, I think the economics of this business, which has been well documented, are, are, are really questionable. This company has never shown operating cash flow. Uh, so that means that this company is completely dependent on the public markets for its continued existence. They're burning cash in excess of $10 billion per year. We mentioned the monopoly power that uh, these cable companies have. And that was a big thesis of Uber as it was scaling up, that we're going we're gonna to take over all these markets and become the dominant player so we can control the market. However, that, that's failed repeatedly overseas. They burned a ton of cash and were unable to, uh, unable to capture those markets. There's been some more promise, uh, promise from the, the company and, and from observers that, hey, maybe food delivery, maybe Uber Eats will drive some profits <laughs> to the business. Well, we saw this past week uh, with Grubhub's earnings that maybe that's not quite going to materialize. Grubhub sold off 40%. Um, Management of Grubhub has said U.S. delivery coverage has now been commoditized, and now with non-partnered restaurant delivery becoming more prevalent, the supply side of the business is going to be commoditized as well. Noted short seller Jim Chanos, who is who is short Grubhub, said this a couple months ago. It said Grubhub competing against Uber is like being locked in a cage with a psychopath with an axe. And uh, that's pretty appropriate for Halloween, and it's pretty appropriate to the amount of cash that Uber needs to burn to claim these markets. Uh, Dan, what do you think about Uber's chances to not turn into a pumpkin? So Uber set up a business model where they undercut pricing, and I've talked about this many times. They undercut taxi pricing by dramatically too much. So they've built up this expectation with consumers that it's going to cost you much less to use an Uber, and that makes absolutely no sense. They could have been 15% cheaper than taxis and 100% more convenient, and the model would work. So what I don't see this company doing is raising prices. If, if your business model doesn't work, but there's heavy demand for what you're selling, you need to right-size with, with pricing. And you know they tried surge prices, they've tried other things, but in general, they are selling $20 bills for like, I don't know, 12 bucks. It doesn't make any sense. I am very negative on this company, I'm very negative on the industry, and I'm very negative on food delivery. Because the same the same reason you talked about. There's like 10 people I can get food delivered from, and half of them send me free coupons during the day. And yes, that will motivate my behavior in that moment. But 
I can get some restaurants from like six different places. I'm always going to look for the best and cheapest option. And they've created that habit. And it's very hard to pull back from that. Yeah, I agree with you, Dan. I mean, from my point of view, I almost think the the food delivery market is less attractive than ride sharing. Uh, ride sharing, you know, you, you have an ability to raise prices of the consumer, but when it comes to food delivery, these restaurants are already at razor thin margins. There there is there is a limit to how much you can really lean on these folks and how much profit you can squeeze out of them. Um, so so yeah, the fundamental economics of the business require a person to be in a car. Uh, driving people around or delivering food that doesn't scale in the way that software does, which is a lot of these folks want you to believe with a quote-unquote tech company uh, like Uber. And another thing to point out here, when it comes to the cash burn that this company has had, uh, it's been well documented the way the way drivers are paid and treated on this platform. When you when you when you account for the wear and tear on your vehicle driving it around, these folks are making less than minimum wage. When you arguably are exploiting your your workers. Uh, and you still cannot turn a positive cash flow. Uh, it, it just boggles my mind how this company scales and really becomes profitable and justifies their near $50 billion valuation today. I think it has a lot further to fall. Yeah. And the question is, where is all this money going? Because, I mean, Uber is still spending a lot on marketing. Do you know anyone who doesn't know what Uber is? What they aren't doing a great job with is education. My mother takes an Uber if I order one for her, but she's not comfortable using it. So they don't have to market to her. They actually have to teach her how simple it is to use the platform. They're making things easier for drivers. That's great, uh, giving them better access to their money. But they're not sort of expanding their customer base. And even if they do, they'll just lose more money because it doesn't cost enough. All right, Dan, enough beating up on Uber. Let's talk about <laughs> uh, our zombie stocks now. So what are zombie stocks? Our zombie stocks are stocks that we think can come back from the dead. Dan, what you got? So I'm cheating a little bit because this isn't a dead stock, but it's in a space where a lot of companies are dead. Uh, Macy's has basically had its price cut in half uh, from in the past year, from about $30 to $15. And it's one of those on-the-precipice companies. Is it going to be you know, a, quote, victim of the retail apocalypse, or is it going to survive? But when you look at the companies that have turned the corner, Best Buy, Walmart, Target, the, the sort of commonality is that they all invested in omnichannel. And while you're, you may not feel that way about Macy's, Macy's is shipping individual orders from stores. They have some interesting checkout technology. They buy online, pick up in store. They've made all those investments. And generally, people do want to see clothes. They want to try them on. So I'm not a thousand percent sure that Macy's is going to make it, but I do think they're in a pretty good position that will be enhanced by other department stores, other retailers going out of business. Because again, I'm not buying a suit online. I, I'm going to go to Macy's and try it on. Yeah, Dan. Uh- we talked about you know Macy's pushing into omni-channel. I think another one of the areas that they've tried to experiment a little bit is with this Macy's backstage uh, concept, kind of similar to a TJ Maxx. They've also pushed into resale. I think they have a partnership with ThreadUp. When you look at uh, what Macy's is doing in this kind of off-price segment of the market, uh, how optimistic are you that, that that can show some real promise for the business? I'm fairly optimistic because they're moving in the direction that customers are actually in. So, I, I, you know, the, again, there's no guarantee that any of these things connect. We've seen partnerships between digital and physical brands uh, fail. But Macy's is kind of taking one of those, let's look at everything that works and throw it at the wall. And Walmart did that. And I recognize Macy's and Walmart are very different price points. But that sort of strategy lets you figure out what's going to work. And then you can double down your investments and go from there. 
All right, Dan, my zombie stock, and this might be a little controversial, I think you might have some thoughts here, is GameStop, uh, ticker GME. Uh, and this, this is a stock that, that's probably been left for dead a little bit. Uh, shares are down 57% year-to-date. Most recent quarter, comp store sales down 10.3%. I was driven in large part uh, by hardware sales down 41.1%. Pre-owned hardware and software also down 17.5%. Had to take a massive uh, goodwill write down. So when I list all those things out, you know, it doesn't sound like this company really has much chance to come back from from the dead. However, uh, I do think there are some positive signs that show this company, uh, you know, has more life to it than maybe the market is giving. Uh, so first off, this downturn in sales is pretty typical for GameStop when it comes to the console cycle. So uh, the, the Xbox One uh, and the and the PlayStation Four are both well towards the end of their uh, of their useful lives. Uh, next year, Christmas 2020, we will see the introduction of next generation consoles. So that explains part of the part of the downturn in console sales. There had been some concern. A lot of GameStop's business in the past has been driven by its used games business. There had been some concern that uh, with the push towards digitalization, we may see uh, hardware uh, discs, software completely go away. However, we've seen both Xbox and PlayStation announce they're going to have physical media for their next cycle. Uh, They brought in a new CEO who, who has a plan to turn the company around and has really pushed really hard for cost improvements. When he first came on, they had expected to, to, uh, have $100 million in cost savings. However, they've projected that out to be in excess of $200 million. Another concern around this company has been, hey, this is next. This is the next Radio Shack. Uh, this is the next Best Buy. This is one of these companies that there's really not a reason for it anymore. Maybe Best Buy is not that great of an example because the stock has done so well. But maybe the next Radio Shack. However, uh, there's not a bankruptcy coming anytime soon for GameStop, at least in my uh, my estimation. Uh, the company is projecting for 225 to 250 million dollars in adjusted free cash flow this quarter. Uh, they're paying down their debt. Uh, they actually have a, a, a enterprise value to free cash flow of under three times, so so really cheap uh, uh, relative to their market cap. And uh, and they have $230 million left on a repurchase authorization. Michael Burry of the Big Short fame has been pushing really hard uh, for them to repurchase shares. So when you see this new console cycle ramping up next year, you see the company cutting costs in a really meaningful way. You see this new management team driving a, a, a turnaround plan that you know, whether it works or not, the finances of this company are strong enough uh, uh, to support a valuation above where they're at today. Dan, I know you might have some thoughts that are contrary to that. What do you think about GameStop? Yeah, this is sort of, you know, masking a, a slow decline. And yes, I think they have one more heyday. They are going to get a bump in sales when the new consoles come out. Probably not as high a bump as as in the past because more will sell direct or through other channels. But I see software sales and yes, they'll still be physical discs, but the reality is I almost never buy a physical disc. I download games. Uh, my son download games. And it's still slow. It's not quite there yet. But fundamentally, you also have to realize GameStops are mall-driven or strip mall-driven, and you're going to see sort of a shaking out in the United States of malls where upscale malls succeed and sort of bigger lifestyle centers that have entertainment succeed, but the smaller, the B&C malls are going to close. Some of the strip centers that, that GameStop is in 
are going to suffer from vacancies and that's not going to drive traffic. So do I believe this company can survive in the way that there's always like a sad toy store at the mall? Yeah, I guess it can survive, but I don't see it thriving unless it really figures out a different niche of what to sell and how to engage people with its stores. Yeah, to your point, Dan, uh, some folks in the past have talked about uh, maybe pushing into uh, esports sorts of things and, and driving folks there, but there is some limited square footage when it comes to it comes to GameStop stores. That said, uh, another another to your point as well, they're well overstored. I, I want to say they're in the, the five thousands of of, uh, of stores across the country. Uh, a lot of those are, are going to need to be closed down. There's a lot of redundancies there uh, that can help them out on costs. Thankfully, a large proportion of their leases are rolling off in the next. A couple of years, so they should hopefully be able to downsize uh, without facing these problems. However, uh, you know this is a stock that's left for dead. I think it. I think it has a little bit more uh, a squeeze left in it. I think. Uh, uh, what what is the, uh, the the Warren Buffett line? Uh, cigar butt. Yeah, I think I think there's probably as you mentioned, Dan, maybe one more smoke left in this cigar as the next console <laughs> cycle rolls through. But uh, but we'll have to see. I'll close with they do have a lot of time to make a change. They're they're managing their cash very well. So this could be just sort of a, a company that's good and maybe it goes private because it's not going to be a growth story, but it doesn't necessarily have to die. It could be a company that provides a niche. There, there will still be accessories. There'll be things you sell around gaming. If it can figure out what those products are, I mean, we've talked about you know Funko products, and I think somewhat they're, they're over retail too because you can buy them so many places. But whether it's T-shirts or collectibles or whatever it is, if GameStop can figure out a mix, they don't have to die, but I don't think they're going to be super healthy and growing. Yeah, we shall see. This next console cycle, I think, will definitely prove it out. Whether uh, there is continued demand from consumers to buy uh, physical hardware, or whether that full shift uh, to to buying uh, uh, you know software online is uh, you know carries through. All right, Dan, I want to move on to uh, to our fun part of the show. We're going to do our Mount Rushmore of Halloween candy, snake draft style. Uh, Dan, I'll let you go with the first pick. You're the guest on the show. Uh, you know, <laughs> let let the guests go first. So I'm going to go with the classic, and I'm going to say Skittles. I don't mean sour Skittles. I don't mean you know any of the new packages of Skittles. I mean classic red package. The colors don't mean anything. They all taste the same. Skittles. It's a uh, you know sort sort of one of the better for you uh, Halloween snacks. It doesn't melt all that easy. Kind of a classic. All right, Austin Morgan, what you got? Uh, my favorite candy of all time: uh, Reese's peanut butter cup. Not. The shaped ones, the classic ones. <laughs> the shaped ones have too much peanut butter. I know I'm going to get some flack for saying that, but I was going to say my wife prefers the shaped ones. The uh, I believe the Christmas tree being her her favorite of yeah, all. Yeah, I was going to say the Christmas tree and the egg are really are really the go to for me. But you sniped me on my first pick, Austin. <laughs> that's uh, that's too bad. I'm going to go uh, with Kit Kat. I think Kit Kat is chronically overrated. Uh, easy to share. It's got the crunch. It's got the chocolate. What else could you want? Uh, so I'm going to go Kit Kat for my first pick. And since we're on the snake draft, I get to go coming back again. So I'm going to go with the one true M&M, the only M&M, the only M&M you should ever get, the peanut M&M. It's the best. Uh, if, if you disagree with me, I'm sorry, you're wrong. Uh, yeah, that's my pick. Austin, what you got for your second pick? 100% agree with that pick. That was my number two. So I guess we're even. Uh, I'm going to go with. I'm going to go with Twizzlers. Ooh. Ooh. That, that's that, a, that's a good. They did That's not snipe one. me on that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Sadly, as someone who's largely gluten-free, Twizzlers are a no-go. Ooh. 
All right, Dan, you got two in a row. What you got? Yeah, I'm going to go with a uh, a candy you either love or hate and say Junior Mints. Um, you know, maybe not the most popular candy, but a personal favorite. And then I'm going to follow up with one that I can't believe we haven't mentioned yet because it is the perhaps greatest mainstream candy bar. And I'm going to say the Milky Way. You've got your nougat, your caramel, your chocolate, all in perfect balance. An excellent candy. The poor man Snickers in my book. <laughs> Austin, what you got for number three? Number three, I'm going with a take five. Ooh, good choice. <laughs> a, a, a vaguely unpopular choice, I would say. Can you even buy a fun size take five? I have no idea. I think so, but they're delicious. They're right up there with Reese's for me. Yeah, I would say chronically <laughs> underrated, underrated candy. Uh, a take five. I think another great pick. All right, so I get two. My two come back uh, at the end. So I'm going to go with uh, first one, Twix. If you're sensing a trend here with the Kit Kat, I like the crunch. I like uh, I like the chocolate. You throw a little throw a little uh, little caramel in there. Really carries it through. Honestly, I'm not as big of a fan of of the peanut butter one. Maybe that's a little controversial. Uh, but original Twix, and I would say I'm a left Twix guy. I don't know, but uh, but yeah. So I'll go with Twix. And then for my final pick, I think this is another one uh, that's chronically underrated: Hershey's with almonds. Okay, so the plain Hershey's, the plain Hershey's. I would say not. I'm not into it, but when you throw the almonds in there, it is a game changer, and it becomes uh, one of the top four candies uh, of your Halloween options. You're just taking all of my picks. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Austin, what you got? Last pick. Oh, I'm gonna have to. Let's see. I'm gonna go with. I'm gonna go with Whoppers. I like a good little bite-sized pack of Whoppers. All right. <laughs> I've got. I've got no thoughts to add there. Dan, bring us home. I was going to say, Whoppers was sort of on my just discarded list. And I'm going to give a quick shout out to my favorite candy of all time, the score bar. But I'm going to say that no one hands out score bars for Halloween. So it can't really make this list. And I'm going to throw out the Nestle's Crunch. It, Nick, this is sort of in your camp. It's got the chocolate. It's got the crunch. It's maybe a little bit underrated. It melts kind of easily. But, you know, you get the little fun size ones they're thicker than the regular crunch and you've got a you got a top quality candy there very nice so listeners if you have a mount rushmore of your favorite halloween candy let us know tweet us at mf industry focus if you don't like any of these candies and you get a bunch of them in your kids halloween uh, halloween bag <laughs> and you don't know what to do with them mail them over here mail them over here to the fool we'll take care of them for you uh dan thanks as always for coming on the show always love having you on Thanks for having me. That seems like a good way to get poisoned by uh, someone who doesn't like us that much. Ooh, that, that's a bummer. <laughs> As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For Dan Klein, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!